Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by Lynda.com. Learn what you want, when you want, with access to thousands of high-quality, easy-to-follow video tutorials, including many about photography. For seven days of free, unlimited, in-depth courses, visit Lynda.com slash TWIP. This week on TWIP, Adobe announces changes to the Creative Cloud, Yahoo removes Facebook and Google logins from Flickr, Amazon announces the Fire Phone and an interview from Paris with Serge Remedy and Vanity Jardin. It's Monday, June 23rd, 2014, and this is TWIP. And welcome back to TWIP. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Joining me today on the show to discuss the world of photography and the happenings therein are architectural photographer, Mr. Jeffrey Totaro, and technology evangelist at Lytro, and my good friend, Mr. Topher Martini. Hey, guys. Welcome back. Hey. How you doing, Frederick? Doing great. I'm doing great. Topher, you haven't been on in forever. I know a lot a lot is going on in your world over there. First of all, tell us tell us the most important news, and then go on to you know we'll talk about that little product thing that you that you happen to work on. Will do. Well, after many years, I'm finally getting married to my best friend, and uh, want to say I love you, Christy, first and foremost. Oh, getting married in October, and did a total heart sign. <laughs> there you go, Jeffrey. You got to do the heart. Come on. I got, I've never done one before. Give me some. <laughs> yeah, yeah, do the heart. <laughs> so, and you know, uh, also at Lytra, we uh, announced our second generation camera, the Lytra Illum, and back in April, and are getting ready to ship it here in July, and have a lot of cool stuff to talk about. And uh, would encourage everybody to learn more at Lytra. That's L Y T R O dot com. All right, we're gonna we're gonna talk about the Illum a little bit when we get into the news because I have I have a couple questions for you on that, as you might imagine, Topher, because you know me. <laughs> right? All right, we'll dive into that, Jeffrey. What's been going on in the world of architectural photography? Well, we keep busy with the usual things. Um, uh, work with mostly mostly my uh, architect clients lately, and uh, I did a workshop back in. Uh, in May, which was out in Michigan, it was kind of a, I mentioned it last time I was on, but it was sort of a, I called it a bespoke workshop. It was a private mm-hmm. group that invited me to come out and teach them some architectural photography. So that was a lot of fun. I uh, got to shoot some really cool buildings. And uh, this week I'm just getting ready for a few shoots coming up later in the week in New York. We're shooting a new building in Washington Square and then a couple of uh, a couple of corporate interior projects over the weekend. So just getting ready for those. That's cool. So, anything yeah. anything drastic changed? Uh, has, has anything drastic changed in your workflow like with new gear, are you? Uh, no. Those? Yeah, pretty. Uh, I, th- I think I've mentioned it before. I switched back in. I think in July last year to the Phase One IQ 260 medium format pack. Yeah, yeah. And that's been great. Really been enjoying using that. And um, otherwise, no. I th- um, my my pick of the week later on uh, is some new lighting equipment. I'll mention that later. But uh, but yeah, mostly the same similar software. Is Phase One's Capture One Pro. Uh, is the the primary tool, and obviously Photoshop. We'll talk about that a little bit later too. So, Very but cool. yeah, mostly mostly keeping pretty steady. Not too many changes. Very cool. Well, I'll tell you, changes on my side. My body is going through a couple changes right now because I just got back from a week, or I think it was like twelve days over in in Paris. And man, what a good time! If you haven't, guys, if you haven't been to Paris yet, you got to go to Paris. I mean. Yeah. 
France is amazing. Notwithstanding the fact that I don't speak or read French, so I was a deaf mute over there for the, for the most part. But, you know, after a while, you know, I got the hang of saying we oui and no. But, uh, you know, it's just it's just a picturesque city. I was over there with Valerie, uh, Valerie Jardin. She's uh, one of the frequent co-hosts on This Week in Photo. I was hanging out at her workshop. She did a fantastic job on the workshop. And the uh, I'm just still blown away by the city. One of the highlights of my trip there was I got to meet none other than Serge Ramilly, the French photographer living in Paris, France. <laughs> so I got to have dinner with Serge, and we uh, did an interview with he and Valerie, two French photographers or photographers, um, and I uh, had a really good time. So that interview is probably going to go live sometime in the next couple of days or so. But, uh, yeah, it was a good, really good time. The cool thing about it, though, was I was there, and where is that thing? Here it is. So my good friends over at Panasonic sent this camera with me to shoot with. This is the oh, Panasonic GH4. And, man, oh, man, I was shooting 4K footage around the Louvre, around the Statue of Liberty. Or not Statue of Liberty. Actually, yes, yeah, the Statue of Liberty because the small one is there. Um, the Eiffel Tower, uh, you know, all kinds of different places. And I was just blown away by the 4K footage. And when you squeeze it down or, you know, downsample it to 1080, it just looks otherworldly. It's just, it's yeah. insane. And exporting frames from it, it's crazy. You know, it's just, it's just a good, good rock solid camera. So having fun with it so far i have to mail it back to panasonic this week but you not until well doug k and i are going to do an all about the gear episode uh for thursday i think it is where we're going to talk about the gh4 and he's got one in his hands now that borrow lenses sent him so we're going to compare notes and see uh see what's what so really cool so interesting time interesting camera amazing city good people so it was a good time all around guys all right, before we jump into the show, I want to thank our sponsor for this episode of This Week in Photo, and that's our good friends over at lynda.com. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com. That's L-Y-N-D-A.com. You can learn what you want, when you want, with high-quality video tutorials at lynda.com. And Lynda gives you everything you need to improve your skills. Lynda offers a variety of instruction. You can learn software, creative business skills, photography techniques, web design, and more. They have over 2,000 courses and over 100,000 tutorials. They offer courses for all levels and they add new courses each and every day. Their courses are taught by industry experts and their instructors are accomplished professionals that are at the top of their fields and passionate about teaching. Linda's courses are high-quality video productions, and the videos are made in state-of-the-art studios. They use screenshots, narration, live action, smart boards, charts, graphics, and audio. No homemade YouTube videos here. Linda.com courses are convenient. You can take them anytime from your computer, your tablet, or your mobile device. And each Lynda.com course is structured so that you can learn from start to finish or just jump to in to find a quick answer. You can quickly search transcripts to easily find the information you're looking for. And for one low monthly price of $25, they give you un unlimited access to the entire course library. You can start improving your skills with a free seven-day trial, including unlimited access, at lynda.com twip. And you can show your support for This Week in Photo at lynda.com twip. We thank lynda.com for their support. 
lynda.com. What do you want to learn today? All right, guys, let's jump into the show here. Can you hear my voice cracking from the fact <laughs> it's like it's like the middle of the night for me right now. I feel like I'm doing the show in the middle of the night. It's amazing you're right. still up. I, you know why I'm still up? Because I'm drinking this magic, you know, caffeine Coca-Cola elixir here that's mm-hmm. like got me in this false sense of alertness right now. But before we judge, so the first story that we had in the notes, Topher, was about, or both of you guys, was about Adobe announcing changes to the Creative Cloud. Before I do that, Topher, since I have you on the hot seat here, the uh, the Illum, so the new camera that's from, or actually the first kind of pro prosumer camera out of Lytro, is is about to hit the market. So I'm not going to leave the witness at all. I haven't had that thing in my hand yet, obviously, but you have. Tell us what the camera is and who it's for and what problems it's trying to solve. Yeah, so fundamentally, a light field camera captures depth of field, and it does that by capturing light before it becomes a pixel. Now, as a photographer, can break it down into those two segments. We know what depth of field is. You know, for a given focus point and aperture, there's a range of focus around that. All cameras effectively flatten that depth of field so you get a single still image. What a light field camera does is captures that entire range of depth of field as light. So then after the fact, you can turn it into an interactive living picture. Uh, One of the things we've done with the promotional material is show how you can create an animated slideshow using some really cool effects to, you know, go between racking focus, perspective shift, even some aspects of tilt shift. So for people who are looking for a new creative tool, this is something that's a companion product probably to the camera you already have. It's a new creative outlet to expand either, you know, your brand and business or the type of creativity you work on as a hobby. Um, But definitely shooting for a professional prosumer audience that people are looking to push the envelope to be kind of a technology pioneer to take advantage of these new tools, to see how they can be integrated into your workflow, and ultimately deliver a new kind of visual product. So then, so then, you know, Jeffrey, I want to have you jump in here too because you're an architectural photographer, obviously. So clearly, if this if this thing takes off, then there are some ramifications for and some new capabilities that you'd have available to you. And over looking at this, what? So when I when I look at it and I think of okay, this is these are the cameras that I've been shooting with for you know since the 80s, right? So, and this camera is not those, right? So it gives me new capabilities, but with some similarities to the things that I've already been doing. Um, But with the caveat that in order for me to distribute my work in this new format, there are some barriers to jump over. For example, you have to be on a computer or device that has the Lytro software input. So tell me how you guys are looking at that issue. Yeah, actually, we've come out with a new web player that uses WebGL, which is based on OpenGL as the Mm -hmm. open graphics language, 3D, you know, that powers the Internet. And we've actually recently partnered with 500px. We'll actually put a link to the press release in the show notes that we want to get this player out there. And, you know, we want to deliver amazing, visually compelling content everywhere that people consume it today. So this kind of open source initiative behind the player is one way of doing that. We've also revamped the desktop software itself. So if you wanted to export an animated movie, pre-rendered, of course, that is one option as well. Okay. Always export a traditional 2D image, but you know it's going to be a reduced resolution because that's not really what the camera is about. But as a kind of jack of all trades camera, you know I recently went to Japan and uh, actually used it as a primary camera. When sharing on social media, 
you're typically sharing a two megapixel or less image anyways. Mm -hmm. So because you're capturing depth of field, even if your focus or whatever exposure settings are off just a little bit, you can go back and correct them way more easily. Uh, so for people who are looking for that social media outlet, uh, this is a great uh, option for that too. So what's what's the what's the the audience that or the workflow that Lytro is hoping will be used? Is it is it on the left hand? From my hand, it's, from my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this is post processing. I can shoot a scene and then make the focus point decisions later. Or, are like you're saying, is the goal to create an entirely new distribution mechanism where I can create art that is motion with a z-axis kind of you know animation in there which is it one or the other or is it more one than the other kind of both I mean you're famous for saying loving to punish pixels yes giving you a whole bunch of pixels to punish and you know it's really breaking it back out into the elementary light rays so you're able to punish those pixels even before they become a pixel um, Every light-filled camera calculates a depth map, which is the depth-based information in your scene. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of the types of work, like uh, Jeffrey with architectural photography, you know, there's really not a lot of depth of field there. You're shooting a very wide angle and very far away. Right. So for scenes with depth of field, it's a completely synthetic aperture. If you think about it, the camera has a constant f2 lens from equivalent 30 millimeter all the way out to 250. So that's an entirely large range. Uh, for carrying in a single lens, but yeah. even at 30 millimeters, uh, you can actually focus all the way up right into the front lens element. So for macro photography, especially, you know, that's unheard of performance. Wow. And <laughs> this is the type of, along with you know, computing a depth map, access to raw light, not just pixels. Uh, we're really at the forefront of some really cool tool set. Um, some of like what we're seeing with Adobe later on. Jeffrey, go ahead and jump in there. What What do you think? Yeah. Of it? How's this going to work for you? Well, actually, I just had one quick question first. I was curious, Topher, when, when the Lytro, the first one first came out, uh, and now the new product's about to launch, were there uh, things that you learned, things you didn't expect that people were using the camera for that uh, affected the, the way you designed the new one? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the first camera did a monumental shift of taking what was a laboratory science, something that only existed in large camera rays at academic and other research institutions, and turned it into something that can fit in your pocket. You know, our founder and executive chairman, Ren Ung, it was his PhD dissertation that was really the forefront of that research. And I think now we're seeing, you know, taking the things that people loved about the first camera and empowering more professional audiences. The macro photography capability is, you know, a great example of that, that people want to have this versatility they can't get in their traditional cameras today. Uh, you know, I shoot prim primarily on a rangefinder thinking about focusing all the way up to the front lens element is unheard of. Right. Uh, conversely, because we're capturing raw light, we correct the light in software. So we're able to design a lens that you can't do on a traditional camera. Uh, hmm. Traditionally, people use aspherical elements to control for light uh, to make it focus appropriately inside the lens. It adds increased cost, increased weight, and size to the lens design. With the single lens we do on the Lytra Loom, it actually has no need for an aspherical element. We can do all of that uh, aberration correction in software after the fact. So although it is a single lens design, I view that more as a benefit because we can get the whole range of 30 to 250 in one lens. Yeah. How is that? Uh, sorry, Frederick. I was curious. No, how is that, how is that lens design? I'm very curious because is it. Uh, 
what you would call like a digital zoom, or is it actually a mechanical optical zoom, or is it? Or you can't you say yet? Yeah. So it is. Uh, it is uh, to use the term digital zoom is kind of more appropriate. It is kind of a drive by wire, uh, more akin to like almost like a video lens that you're using the zoom and focus ring, so you have full control. Um, there's also kind of multiple layers of, of focusing. Uh, when you asked earlier about kind of things that we learned from the first generation camera that are built into the second, people love the smartphone interface for taking pictures. If you look at where the innovation in photography has really been driving, it's in the snapshot photography that everybody has on their phones. So designing a camera that has all these amazing features but can be driven purely from the, the touchscreen interface if you want or can be driven purely by physical controls. So giving professional photographers the ability to drive by hand if they want to, or drive by touch. Now, Topher, one of the, okay, here's, here's me putting on my devil's advocate hat here. So a lot of folks are saying, you know, Lytro is awesome. It's been a while since we heard anything from them, since the first Lightfield camera came out, and now the Illum is out. So, okay, great, they're, they're, they're pressing forward. But in that window, and even now, some people are saying, Okay, Lytro, great, amazing technology, amazing IP there, but are, isn't it just a technology demonstration that we're going to then see a Sony or a Nikon or Canon or Panasonic or whoever else acquire and then incorporate into their more mainstream bodies? Well, I think Lytro or Bloom is a really good demonstration of the commitment to photographers. There has been, you know, they don't call it work because it's easy. <laughs> These things mm -hmm. take a long time to work on. And it's really important to highlight that this isn't just a camera. It's an end-to-end -end ecosystem. It's the software on your camera, the software on your desktop and mobile, and most importantly, how your uh, audience experiences the picture through the web, through mobile. So although you know it's been, you know, call it two years since the last camera came out, we've been doing a lot of improvement through the desktop software, through defining a mobile experience in the web. So all of that comes together in a new generation camera platform that will then be extending further in the years to come. In many mm -hmm. ways, you know, for the first generation camera, we had 11 firmware updates, and those had both bug fixes and features uh, at every single release. You know, I challenge you to find another camera manufacturer out there that's that committed to software. Yeah. Uh, one, of, one of the other questions, Topher, was, um, and this is just, I know you can't answer this because... We both know previous companies that we've worked for issued a statement, can't comment on unreleased products or features. But one one thing that I've that is the natural feature that comes to mind is if you're doing this for still, you can throw a little extra horsepower at it. We should be able to have focus later video, right? Well, so to your point, it's important to quickly say that you know product roadmap versus application of the technology. Right. Uh, as mentioned earlier, you know a lot of light field research comes from the academic environment, and now we're seeing it come to the, the commercial marketplace. And you know there's unbelievable amounts of places that light field technology can go. But I think the photography market is the best proving ground that yep. if you can make a professional imaging device that people make new, creative, and compelling content for. You know, you can go anywhere after that. Uh, you look at Canon and Nikon and Leica and all these other guys, they all have different kind of optical arms to their company. And, you know, I hope that is something that gets developed in the future. But, you know, the commitment to photography today is the most important part. And uh, mm -hmm. I think the Lightroom Loom delivers on that.
I'm just glad that you guys are around doing cool stuff because there seems to be a lull in like insanely cool stuff happening in the photography, the photography industry. I mean, there's, you know, especially from the big guys, it's just been like incremental crumbs thrown in our cages, you know, no big meals of like, look at this, we're changing the world. Yeah. Yeah. Bold initiatives like this do take time. You know, we look at this as the 175th anniversary of photography. Um, I know Photokina later this year is looking to do kind of a big centennial event around that. And you all, you know, we kind of put our smartphone hat on when we think about cameras these days. Mm-hmm. Every six months to 12 months, I want a new major OS update, new hardware. But in photography, you really want that long-term commitment. You know, I primarily shoot on like a rangefinders and. I'm using glass that was manufactured before I was born. Yeah. I think if you look at how technology can empower that in the future, you know, fundamentally a light field camera is the merger of hardware and software for a new camera platform. So those types of large, you know, sweeping changes to the operating system are finally possible. You know, that feeling you get when you update from iOS 7 to 8 or Android, you know, 4 to 4.4, you know, that should be the same experience you have with a camera. Wait a minute, but that's a feeling of dread that I get when I do that. (laughs) If done right, you know. If done correctly. (laughs) And you don't brick your phone. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. That's good. So, yeah, continue continue going down that. I mean... You know, I mean, I'm excited to see what happens in the future. I was I was uh, chatting with my brother earlier, and we were both saying, you know what, we were born too early, because all this cool stuff is happening now. You know, and it's uh, you know, it's a brave new world we live in. All right, guys, let's let's move on to this this next story. It's about Adobe and the changes and updates to Creative Cloud. So. Last Wednesday, Adobe had held one of their classic big production style uh, press conferences and where they announced a, a bunch of changes to the Creative Cloud service. And, you know, a couple of them were specifically for photographers. So I'll run down the lists here. So it was Lightroom Mobile for the iPhone, Creative Cloud for Photography, and Lightroom. So the subscription is now $9.99 a month or $119.88 a year. They announced Adobe Photoshop Mix for the iPad, a new blur gallery, uh, motion effects like spin and spin blur and path blur for Photoshop, improvements to the content aware strategy or the, to that technology, so the content aware scale and fill and all that. They got updates in there, improved layer comps, focus masks, which, which I want to play with. I haven't played with this yet. It automatically selects the area of an image that it is in focus, Topher. Hmm. <laughs> so, which is pretty interesting. Improved type and font capability. So the type thing is cool. So for my design background, this was insane. As you roll over, so you select some type in a document. As you roll over the font list in the type menu, the font dynamically changes in your document. Insane. Insanely cool. So I'm like, why didn't they do this before? But anyway. And then uh, more 3D printing enhancements. And then, um, in addition, a few features were removed from Photoshop, namely the mini bridge, the oil paint filter, and support for Mac OS 10.6, if anyone was still using 10.6. Now, Which one was 10.6? Uh, 
Uh, I don't know. <laughs> which line was like, uh, I don't know. I forget which cat that was. Yeah. Um, but uh, Terry White and Scott Kelby did write-ups and videos on the release. So if you want to get deep into what the changes are and see them demonstrated, we'll put links to both of their posts in the uh, the notes for this episode. So, Jeffrey, when you saw this, I'm, uh, presumably you saw the you know the, the uh, keynote or at least read about it. What did you think? Yeah. Are we... Uh, are we, is this a compelling reason to sign up for the $9.99 a month? Well, I did. I switched over to the Creative Cloud um, probably six months ago in anticipation of getting a new Mac Pro, partly because uh, the newer versions of, of Photoshop and, and Lightroom and all can take advantage of the more multi-threaded processing that the new Mac Pro offers. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to make the switch and be ready for when the Mac Pro arrived, which in my case it arrived last week. <laughs> so Very good. Uh, Got the new Mac Pro brewing back there. Um, nice. Which has been great, by the way. Yeah, it's really. I heard totally it's really seamless. slow. It's really slow, right? It's like, uh... yeah, it lumbers along. You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's uh, so I, I switched over to Creative Cloud in anticipation of that, and that's been really uh, very smooth. I thought the whole Creative Cloud thing was was very smooth and easy. I've done yeah. a few of the updates along the way, and then uh, I was paying attention to these new updates and. Uh, you know, Photoshop's been around a long time. There's been uh, now it's like the, the 15th version, I guess, if you count from from version one, despite mm-hmm. all the different iterations of what they call it. Uh, so some of the things seem nice, like since the early times, you know, the, this font thing where you would you would <laughs> load a new version of Photoshop and then you would say you would open an old file and the font thing would say these fonts are not here and right. you would just have to say okay, <laughs> and then you have to solve it on your own. So now they've made that more seamless, so it can solve it for you, which is very helpful. Yeah, uh, but looking through a lot of the features, there's the the blur tools that are, are very interesting uh, in terms of how you, you can do a spin blur, which is nice, and you can do um, almost like a not quite a radial blur, but um, I guess they call it a path blur. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think those those are pretty cool. What what appealed to me was the the smart guides, which were just help uh, helping you to be able to space things more accurately. If you have multiple things, you want to space them equally, or or the guides would show up and the snap to grid would would be more automatic, which is nice. Uh, but I was sort of surprised to see that a lot of the changes seem to be very much uh, geared toward uh, sort of graphic design layout sort of things, yeah. and not, not yeah. as much toward photography. But so I was curious where they, as Adobe, where do they draw the line between what they put in InDesign, which I have no knowledge of whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so other than it's Adobe product, but then and where because I see in some of the examples I saw there's a lot of graphic design and 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 layout kind of things going on for a photography editing uh, suite of, of, of apps. So I was just curious how they how they draw the line. But um, uh, the focus mask tool I thought was was pretty cool. The, the content aware thing now offers a adjustment for color. So if you were um, making an adjustment or, or using the content aware for the patch tool or, or some other tool, uh, it does allow you to adjust the color a little bit because sometimes that would get thrown off. I mean, it might match the pattern well, but it might not match the color. So yeah. you can tweak the color now, which which for me is helpful because I'm trying to always patch things together, retouching a, a ceiling, taking a diffuser out of a ceiling tile or something. And those tools are handy, but a lot of times the gradient's off, the color's off. So I was interested to see that. So, uh, But the evolution of this is very uh, interesting to watch at this point because it's so sophisticated. Like how much more sophisticated can they make it? Yeah, yeah, the whole the whole cloud thing reminds me a little bit of Amazon and Amazon Prime, how you have you pay the subscription and you get all these other things in there. You know, you get the movies, you get the music, all this stuff, and they just keep adding and adding stuff in there. And with, with Adobe, 
you know, now there's these fonts that they're giving you and a stock photography library and clip art and some music in there and for Premiere and After Effects and all these things are coming into the cloud subscription to make it more and more enticing for us to sign up for it. Topher, what do you, what do you think of this? Is it, I know you're, you're familiar with these, with this kind of software, obviously. Is it, does this make sense? It totally, and I'm also a Creative Cloud subscriber for the full Creative Cloud. I think, you know, the commitment to mobile was really interesting with this release that to have, I think it's Photoshop Mix as long as, as well as Line and Sketch and the other tool, the lovely new Ink and Slide. Yes, and which you have. I can't believe you got When did you order that? I ordered it the day of and they shipped from California, so it was really easy to get. Yeah. Uh, I'm really impressed. It is a very well put together product. Uh, well, tell us tell us what it is for the people that have no idea what Ink and Slide are. Ink and Slide should totally go to Adobe to get the full rundown, but Ink is a pressure-sensitive iPad pen, um, and Slide is a digital ruler. So when first reading the announcement, I thought, okay, pressure-sensitive pen, you know, works with Creative Cloud. You can actually transfer files and templates and things through the pen. So hmm. if you're collaborating with others, you can do file management that way to some degree. Uh, I thought I had no interest whatsoever for Slide, the ruler. Yeah. After using it, oh my god, I think Slide is the better product. <laughs> if you've ever tried to draw a perfect circle on an iPad, you know you know kind of the kindergarten-esque drawing that you get. It's a sketch. <laughs> oh, completely. And, you know, for everything from doing lighting design to, you know, stage notes or whatever for a photographer, I think it's a really valuable tool. And it takes up no space in your bag at all. So I can see why they did it. Um, you know, does it make sense for everybody? No. You know, Steve Jobs infamously did the, you know, who wants to use a stylus? And mm -hmm. the majority of iPad customers, that is true. But I think for people who are active designers who, you know, I could take an iPad on location now rather than having to bring my whole laptop and, you know, the huge Wacom tablet as well. So I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there. And, you know, I hope they do more hardware. I think it was a really yeah. cool to see the integration between hardware and software. Now, can you do, with an iPad, I mean, is it feasible to do serious design, or are you still just are you still just using it as a sketchboard, and then later you're going to execute your scribbles in the real computer? I think for people who are great sketch artists, I think this is a phenomenal tool. Someone like me who has a very remedial drawing capability, it's still kind of a, a sketch note. Um, but definitely, I, there's people who use the iPad as a full-time creative production, you know, device, and I could see it everywhere from being on location at a shoot, you know, downloading, you know, basically virtually tethering, um, and using the new Lightroom Mobile. That's also possible. So, you know, I think they're definitely making this connection between the Adobe Creative Cloud, the software that's on your desktop, and then how that powers the software that's now on your iPad or mobile. Uh, Lightroom for mobile was all, or for iPhone uh, was also a new and part of this announcement. Yeah. Once you've seen how the Lightroom catalog on your desktop can just auto magically go to your iPad and all the adjustments are there, it, it really comes together. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. In fact, you know, I've I've been sort of hinting at over the last couple of weeks that we're making some significant changes to this week in photo entity and um, and playing a huge part of that is the Adobe suite of products and the, the creative cloud and for me as I go through these exercises of changing things around it's just sort of it's becoming kind of like the operating system for the things that we're doing everything from you know Photoshop to Premiere to Adobe Audition for audio editing and all this stuff and it, the way that it all works together and 
allows us to collaborate. Not to mention, like you said, Topher, the the uh, being able to sync your files up or at least previews or high resolution versions up to your iPhone and your iPad now. Make make little changes and have them sync back down. It's just it's it's getting to the point where it's like okay, it's kind of like the operating system for anything creative in my world, you know. And I think that's where they're trying to go. Mm-hmm. I wish I used Lightroom. <laughs> that sounds so cool. <laughs> you can't use Lightroom, right? Because your files, your is Lightroom not supported by the the Phase One back? I well, there's a funny thing that that takes place with the camera. I use a, a technical camera and. There's this thing called lens cast calibration, which is a process to remove a color cast. That's a byproduct of shifting the lens in relation to the digital sensor. So all that is only supported by Capture One. Uh, So I could use Lightroom for cataloging and other things, uh, but just haven't really built that into my workflow yet. Cool. Sounds like I should with all this new mobile. uh, It's just, it's becoming, I've been kind of waiting for these things to gel and it seems like they're gelling now, you know, because before I was using, okay, this app for that. And then, you know, final cut over here for this. And then, you know, different audio apps for these things. Now it just makes sense to bring it all home again, especially considering that we haven't seen any updates on, you know, on the aperture side and the final cut pro kerfluffle (laughs) stuff going on. It's just like, okay, all right, these guys over here at Adobe are clearly committed to the creative professional, and I honestly, as a creative professional and a content creator, I just don't have time to be chasing horizons when it comes to, you know, are you going to update software? Are you going to, you know, is it dead? Is it alive? I can't be chasing rainbows with that stuff. I got I got <laughs> stuff to do here. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, so at some point you just got to say, okay, all right, you you guys clearly aren't serious. I'm going to go with these guys that are are doubling down every release on this stuff. So it's exciting. It's an exciting time to be doing this stuff. It's interesting to see too, as kind of a small business you know perspective, that it's very consistent cost reporting. It just it's a part of your business now for a lot of people. That yeah. every year you're kind of getting something new for free, and hopefully can enhance your workflow. But it, the consistency, I think, is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, they were they clearly were listening to the whining of us photographers about the pricing. If I just want Lightroom and Photoshop, why do I have to, you know? So, you know, they, they address that and it's showing that they're listening to us. So thank you, Adobe. All right, guys. So story number two here was about Facebook uh, or actually Yahoo removing Facebook and Google logins from Flickr. So that's, that's pretty much the story. I don't think we <laughs> spent a whole lot of time on that. So essentially, Yahoo, before they had Facebook and Google logins uh, on Flickr, where if, you know, to make, to smooth the path to becoming a uh, Flickr user, now they're removing that, probably because they're trying to stand on their own and distance themselves and yada, yada, yada. So anyway, you can read all about that. We'll link to it in the notes for this. But I think one of the more interesting things to talk about is Amazon and their announcement of this new phone. So this new phone. So Adobe announced the Creative Cloud. Then on the same day, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, announced their new or their first smartphone. It's called the Fire Phone. So here are the features. It's got a 4.7-inch screen with a 13-megapixel 13, 13 rear-facing camera, quad-core 2.2 gigahertz processor with 2 gigs of RAM, dual stereo speakers, which I never understood on something that small. It's just like... <laughs> You, know, you can't get any separation. Um, it's available in 32 gigabytes for 200 bucks, 64 gigs at 300. It's going to be carried exclusively by our overlords at AT&T. 
And it, the launch customers will receive a free year of, wait for it, Amazon Prime. So, it, you know, some of the cool things that, you know, I watched the video, one of the cool things that they're standing out, I think it was their first tentpole feature on the video was this perspective shifting uh, video that or screen that you get because it's got apparently like five, four or five cameras on it that track your face, kind of like Microsoft Connect style. So as you move the, the phone, the content shifts in perspective to where your eyes are, giving you kind of a, a more immersive experience. It's kind of like what Apple and, well, actually, Android has been doing for several years with on their phones, but using the accelerometer. Apple added it and added it in in the last release of iOS, where as you tilt the phone, it shifts a little bit in perspective. Now Amazon, with their new phone, is kind of cranking it up to 11. It's it's tracking your face and moving things around. So when I saw that video, I was like, "Wow, that's really interesting." And then, do I really <laughs> do I really do I really need that? Is that a cure in search of a virus? I don't know. Tover, what what do you think of this whole phone rollout? Is it good? Are you buying one? I definitely won't buy one. Um, I thought it was kind of interesting that all these tentpole demos involved buying things off of Amazon. Um, mm -hmm. so, but uh, the, the perspective shifter, the I forget the exact uh, product name for it, but it's actually a really cool thing. It's one of the things Lytra does with light field images as well, and iOS has done it with the, they call it the parallax effect, which is the ability of objects over different distances to move. And I think what's unique about this phone is actually the head tracking it does. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if I were a privacy advocate, I'd be a little, you know, kind of tin hat on that one of uh, yeah. wondering how much is being recorded. And I think it's also interesting that the phone is North America only and maybe even U.S. only, hmm. um, as are a lot of the Prime services. But uh, the other feature I thought was really interesting is free photos for life that every photo you take with that phone gets backed up to Amazon. And, you know, that single feature, I think, is the one where, you know, photographers might be interested in it if you're in the U.S. and on AT&T. Um, but that's really, I think, you know, kind of, it is a photographer's phone, but it's kind of wrapped in this Amazon Prime wrapper. It's kind of a weird feeling. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I looked at that phone, and the first thing that's, as a consumer, the things that are going through my mind are, Okay, what would compel me to leave the Google Play ecosystem or the iOS App Store ecosystem to to move over to that thing? Considering I have iPhone and iPad and Android tablets and phones, what's so cool about this that should you know that will dynamite me away from those to get onto your platform, Jeff? I didn't see anything. And what they say they have two thousand apps in the App Store that they have. I mean. I don't know, Jeffrey. Is this? Is there? Am I missing something here? Is it? Is it more compelling than I think, or what? No, I don't think you are. <laughs> I, th I think it, it's it's strange on a lot of in a lot of cases. I think uh, when you look at the phone and you see those four cameras in the corners, like looking back at you, that's, yeah. that's definitely creepy to me. Yeah. Uh, and, and for a feature that I don't think is really all that useful, it's a, it's a, it seems like a lot of hardware and a lot of processing power being taken up by just making sure I can somewhat more easily pick an icon off the screen, right. uh, at least that's my understanding of it. So I'm not sure that that, that seems like they were just reaching for some kind of technology to, to show. Uh, the one thing I, I kind of liked was the the sort of Mayday feature, I think they call it, which is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just a way if you, if you have problems, like instant support, which I think is a, would be a nice feature for, for any of these platforms to adopt. Uh, 
but the whole idea that the the whole they really should be giving the phone away. You know, I, I I bought some some toner for my printer today, and you're always reminded about how that whole scam works. You know, they practically mm-hmm. give you the printer, so uh, and get you on the toner. So it just seems like with Amazon, they should just give you the phone if it, if it's primarily its its purpose is really to just get you to buy stuff off of Amazon or make it more easy. Uh, but then when you think about how easy it is right now to buy something with the iPhone off of Amazon, it's uh, there's no, I don't see any real compelling reason to say, okay, I need this Amazon phone uh, to make it even easier. I mean, they pretty much have one-click stuff, uh, one-click checkout as it is, so how much right. easier can they get, uh, unless it's going to start reading your thought waves or something. But um, <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think it's it's reaching, and like you say about the ecosystem, I don't, I don't see that they're going to be developing, because now at this point they're the third player in a pretty crowded marketplace. And I don't think they've come up with anything really compelling to to, to drive consumers to uh, to the new fire. Yeah, and I know I know Android purists will say, hey, it's it's running Android, but it's running a forked version of Android, which kind of gets away from the whole Android uh, open source ethos ecosystem thing. So you know, mm-hmm. Amazon took it and then said, okay, you guys go off on your own. We're gonna make our own thing and make it cooler, and it's not gonna look anything like your stuff, but we're gonna use your stuff and build from it, which kind of is what Google wanted in the first place. They wanted to build this this platform that people can then take and build their own thing from. So, I don't know. I mean, one of the, one of the cool features in there, uh, one of the interesting features was the fact that you can, you know, aim it at a book or whatever, and it will instantly look up that book and, you know, obviously on Amazon, you know, and then mm-hmm. you can purchase it. But the video had me rolling because it had... And I think it was a guy or some, or maybe it was a woman on there, and she had a book with her. She aimed it at the book and says, look at this. I can aim it at the book, and it will tell me the title and where to get it. And I'm like, well, you already have the book. <laughs> you can just look at the book without the phone in between you, and you already have it. I don't know. I'm sure, like, uh, I'm sure brick-and-mortar uh, bookstores are going to love this. People come in now and just start zapping all the products and ordering them right there. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. Well, products. I mean, the software has existed already in apps on Android and right. iOS where you could go in and just scan the barcode or just the book cover, and it would, you know, reverse look it up and then tell you you could buy it for $5 less and have it there tomorrow, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, nothing. I mean, it's just I think it's an evolution of the technology that's hardware driven and purpose built now. But we'll see. I mean, it'll be Amazon is a powerhouse and they're advertising it all over Amazon.com right now. We can't get around seeing that Fire Phone. So they're going to sell. I'm sure they'll sell a clip of them to people that don't have iPhones. <laughs> I think the only way that they could really make any market penetration would be to, to give it away or do it for 50 bucks or something. Yeah. Cause Definitely. Why would you spend that much money on a device that's really meant to make that money? Yeah, make it free with your Prime subscription. There you go. Yeah, that's there you go. That's what it. I thought they were going to do with it. Either, and this is their first generation phone, so obviously there's going to be some stumbling out the gate. But if it were free, I'd switch or at least make a second phone. Um, yeah. But the fact that it is a minimum $200, and sure, you get one year of Prime for free, so effectively it's like $110, $120, but it's still an out of pocket investment to buy more stuff on Amazon. Yeah. You know, if I were, you know, looking to maybe one of my parents or someone who wanted to switch off of iOS, the app garden that uh, that Amazon has built is a really good experience. So if they didn't want to go full Android but wanted to kind of do something other than iOS, it's a really good alternative. Yeah. Yeah, the other thing you had to think about is this is this is kind of uh, reminiscent of when the iPhone launched. It was Apple's first phone. It was locked to AT&T. It had limited functionality, and but 
Amazon is coming late to the game and they can kind of stand on the shoulders of, of Apple and Google and do something a little bit more innovative. So maybe this is their first, you know, their first child out into the wild and the next couple of iterations, they will start getting more compelling. So, but I agree with you guys for right now that's, you know, it's not compelling enough for me to switch my entire life around into, you know, something that doesn't have the capabilities of what I already have and have invested in. So, I don't know. All right. All right, guys, it's time for some listener Q&A. This is the segment where we answer a question that has been at the top of some of our listeners' minds. This week's question comes from Patrick Ledger from our Google Plus community page. He says, I'm looking for a redundant backup network storage device, and I'm thinking of the Drobo 5N, but I'm open to suggestions. Uh, can I hear what the guests use? I know Frederick uses Drobo. I do. Okay. So I have, a, I have a Drobo Mini that has my kind of active Lightroom library on it. Then I also have a Drobo 5D and a Drobo 5S. The 5D is primary main storage, and the 5S is a backup. It's a mirror of the 5D, and that's sort of my strategy right now. I recently got a Western Digital Passport Pro, and it's, uh, this thing's amazing. I took it to France with me. It's, uh, it's a little drive. It's plugged in, or else I'd show it to you. It's a little drive, but it's got two two-inch or whatever um, uh, drives in it that are rated together in RAID 0. So, and it's Thunderbolt, and it requires no power. It drives its power from Thunderbolt. So you plug that thing in, and you instantly have two terabytes of RAID storage wherever you go, and it's insane. The only, the only negative of it was I had it, it unmounted a couple of times inexplicably, and it's heavy. So it's, it's a heavy drive that I had to keep in my bag because it had all my photos and stuff on it, so I'm lugging it. A, I can't, I can't check it, and then... You know, it's just a little bit bulky. I don't know. So, Topher, let's start with you. So, your your backup strategy. So, I worked in storage at Apple for a very long time as well, and, and it's important to know that the the three O's of backup, online, offline, and offsite, that your critical data does not exist until it's in each of those three places. And uh, Chase Jarvis actually has an awesome video. Maybe we can link mm. to the show notes. But yeah. uh, it's identifying what is your critical storage, which if you're a photographer, it's your photo library. But if you're also a business owner or personal finances, it's all that data set. And a lot of people think that the data they need to back up is incredibly large. In many cases, it's just a couple terabytes. So when you're shopping storage, be aware of how much data needs to be in all three places. Uh, for me personally, I use a dedicated Mac Mini with a couple Drobos attached to it, and that then gets backed up to a cloud-based storage uh, offsite solution. So when shooting on my computer, I download to a Lightroom catalog there. That gets then backed up to the Mac Mini, so that's the offline component. And then that Mac Mini gets backed up to the cloud as the offsite component. You know, I think the, the listener here was actually looking for some purchasing recommendations. And yeah. so I think that the big question you have to ask is, are you looking for an entirely new storage array or are you looking to make your storage kind of network accessible? Uh, I know the transporter's been mentioned on the show before and there's also a really cool Kickstarter going on by a company called Shirley, uh, the Shirley Box, which is mm. kind of a competitor to that. That's really interesting. Uh, but it's identifying, you know, how much do you want to invest? If this is a couple hundred dollars, I'd recommend going with single hard drive solutions. If it's a little bit more than that and you have, you know, terabytes and terabytes that are growing, look into a managed storage array like a Drobo or Promise Technologies has the Pegasus series for Firewire. Something that you like the support options for because all storage eventually fails. I mean, that is one of the hard realities of storage. And uh, no single solution can protect all your data. 
So instead of looking at just one storage appliance, I'd really look at how do you have your online, offline, and offsite storage. Yeah, no, I agree. You hit it right on the head. Um, what this listener did, what Patrick didn't tell us was what he'd be storing and how much he'd be storing. Because, yeah, I mean, if you're only storing a couple hundred megabytes or a terabyte or so, then you could get away with a couple of external drives and make it redundant. But when you're talking hundreds and, you know, if you're talking a lot of data, you know, uh, and moving a lot of data around, then the scenario and the capabilities change and bandwidth becomes increasingly restrictive as you go up in these large amounts of data. So you're the third leg of the tripod that you mentioned, Topher, putting it in the cloud becomes less and less viable the more data that you're starting with, depending on the service that you go with, right? Absolutely. And offsite doesn't necessarily need to be the cloud. Uh, putting a hard drive in a safety deposit box or anything like like that, anything that if there were you know theft or heaven forbid a fire in your house, that your data would still be protected. So a mm -hmm. lot of people, uh, you know, look at oh, I never could afford a cloud solution or it's not fast enough. But in reality, sneaker net, you know, you can take a hard drive or anything and put it offsite. Yeah, see, the, Jeffrey, I want to get, definitely get your chime in on this because you you create large files, you know, yeah. which you you have to back up. But see, the thing with that third piece, Topher, the is the human element. And we're always the single point of failure. It's, for me, it's got to be automated in order for it to be consistent because I travel a lot. I'm always running around or I'll forget or I get busy with something or family, whatever, and I'll forget to do that. So that last component is always a single point of failure. I know I'm not alone in this. <laughs> it's always a point of failure where, oh, I forgot. I haven't backed up in three weeks and my data is all, you know, I got to figure out how to get it back up to date. Jeffrey, what about you? What's your, what's your backup uh, strategy? Well, it sounds like we're all on the same team here with the Drobo solution. I'll take you on a, a, a little minor tour here. We'll just yeah, and talk us through it for the audio. The audio. Yeah. So over here, I have two uh, two Drobo systems. I have the, the Drobo Pros, the big one uh, that takes eight drives, and the small one next to it is the 5S. Um, so I'll give you a quick uh, rundown of what I do. So I have um, the Mac Pro, which has, a, at this point, it's a new Mac Pro, so I have an external... Uh, drive attached to that, which is my working drive, which is the new Lacy uh, Thunderbolt 2 little big disk, mm -hmm. which is blazing fast. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the sort of current current um, jobs. So when I come back from a job, I'll, I'll upload um, from the laptop, which I shoot to on, on location, I'll upload to the to the Lacy drive on the Mac Pro. And then uh, every morning at 6 a.m., the uh, Lacy drive is backed up to the Drobo 5S, yeah. Um, and then once a week, the Drobo 5S is backed up to the Drobo Pro. And then once a quarter, I swap the entire volume of the Drobo Pro for a whole other array, a whole other volume of eight drives. Uh, so I have that sort of actually offline um, component. I have it covered in a couple of ways, but I have that just to prevent that sort of user error or some other error that might, might take place. Uh, but the automation of that takes place with a, with a piece of software called uh, Chronosync. Mm -hmm. uh, which has been around for a while. I've been using it for a long time. Uh, it's very simple to set up. It's just like, it's like copy this to that this often. And it's very simple. Uh, you can set up schedules. Um, and I do the, the, the 5S backup to the Drobo Pro once a week, just in case I make some mistake. It's not, uh, I have a little bit of time to catch it if there's something wrong in, 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 in that process. But also mm -hmm. just speaking about the Drobos, I, and just by chance, I didn't even have this um, here for the segment, but um, right here is a recently failed um, four terabyte, where am I here? Four terabyte uh, Western Digital drive mm. that Drobo told me last week failed. <laughs> mm. um, 
the little red light came on and um, it said that that drive had failed. So, and it's the newest drive in, in the, in the uh, Drobo. Oh. So I'm actually going through the warranty process, but, th- but they do fail. It's a brand new drive. I mean, I imagine as you get more and more storage packed into these things, they're more likely to fail. Yeah. But, um, but so I didn't have any sort of disaster. I just, I bought a new drive, popped it in and in about 48 hours, it had reestablished itself. Uh, so I haven't had any tr- trouble with the Drobos. I've been using them for, I think five years, maybe. Um, and the, the Drobo Pro is the oldest one. And that's it, uh, been, been very rock solid. I just haven't happened to have them off right now because they make a little too much noise for the podcast. Yeah. That's, that's um, scary that that just failed on you because I, uh, I just got the yellow light on my Drobo 5d, which is telling me that, Hey, I'm getting full. I need you mm-hmm. to swap me out with a larger volume. And that was a two terabyte drive in there, which means because, I have a mirror Drobo. I have to buy two at a time. So I have to, you know, it's got to be like for like in both drives. So I went ahead and ordered two four terabyte drives for the first time. So these are my first. (laughs) And I ordered the Western Digital. It looked like the green ones, probably the ones that you have there. I had great great luck with them. I had maybe six of them. This is the first one that quit. It happens to be the newest one. I just put it in February. So. Oh, really? So literally like 15 minutes before we went live with the show, I'd pressed Amazon Prime, you know, I need two of these drives. <laughs> so yeah. good. I hope they, I hope it holds up because my Drobo is hungry. <laughs> so. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, but the, the whole backup thing, I, I think like you said, Frederick, is that there are the human elements that are always the problem. Yeah. And that's whether you do it uh, often enough or you, uh, you know, have to have the whole thing in place. I also use a, um, I'm still uploading, uh, since I switched computers, I haven't set it up yet, but to Backblaze, which yeah. I just started using thanks to the last time I was on the podcast. Um, yeah. somebody, somebody recommended that there. So, uh, but yeah, having that, but I'm trying to upload, you know, 12 or 15 terabytes up, up to the cloud and, it's going to take a while. So, uh, yeah, it's going to take, it's going to take a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's going to take a while, but, um, but it's extremely important as a professional photographer. Those are your assets. Uh, I get requests all the time to, for stock sales and things. So Mm -hmm. I have to have, uh, those files readily available. And also the nice thing too, is that, um, with having this sort of all online in terms of attached to my computer, I use, um, uh, log me in, uh, a VPN client on my mm-hmm. iPad. So even when I'm out of town and somebody says, oh, I can I buy a photo that you took five years ago? I can very easily access that and, and, and make that sale, you know, almost immediately through, through that. I just leave my computer on all the time, yeah. log right in. It's all available right there. That's cool. That's cool. And this crazy, you know, I, I keyed in on one thing Tover said earlier. He's, Tover, you were talking about if you have a small amount of data, like, you know, say two terabytes, <laughs> I was, thinking, <laughs> I was thinking, see, now you're dating me because I'm like, I had a Commodore 64 back in the day. That was 64K oh, yeah. of RAM that thing. That was, and then, remember the 300, what was it, 300 megabyte or whatever? No, it wasn't even megabyte, 300K disks or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And now we're talking terabytes and gigabytes in, in our phones and our back pockets. It's ridiculous. It happens quick. Uh, it does. Jeffrey's point too about kind of hard drives that fail. It's also important to you know do some type of either media reformatting or a low-level format, not only to your hard drives but also to your memory cards you use in your camera. Uh, you know all these memory cards have really advanced what they call wear leveling technology, which basically cycles all the bits behind the scenes. So if you want to prevent a media failure in the field, a great way is to low-level format all of your media before going on a shoot. Um, some of my favorite photographs were recovered off of failed cards. And simply put, it was because I hadn't used them recently. 
Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy where all this stuff is going, and we're creating more and more data. We're getting, you know, hey, we're up to, you, you, people would say, you know, I will never use that much space in my entire life. And then we look at cameras like this one that's generating 4K, you know, and now we're, you know, we're storing 4K files now, and it's uh, it's uh, it's Pac-Man on your hard drive. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so Pac-Man was a video game back in the... (laughs) (laughs) For those who don't remember who Pac-Man is. No, there was Miss Pac-Man. Miss Pac-Man and Baby (laughs) Pac-Man. All right, guys, uh, let's jump into the listener Q&A. This is a segment where we answer questions, or or actually we just did that. See, this is my (laughs) jet lag kicking in. I can't, I can't, I can't do the show anymore. I'm done. All right, guys, let's do the, uh, let's just roll on and do the, uh, the picks of the week. Um, Topher, let's go with yours. So I want to, I know what your picks of the week are going to be, but I have a feeling you have something else in there. What's your pick? Oh, uh, so of course the Lytro Illum, uh, which you can find out more information at Lytro. That's L-Y-T-R-O.com. What does that thing cost, by the way? So between now and when we first start shipping, there's a pre-order period for $14.99. Once we begin shipping, the price will go up to its full MSRP, which is $15.99. There's also a photo contest for running ahead of time. So all the information and details about that you can see on the website. But it's kind of an advantage to pre-order early because you get a lower price. And we're talking $1,499, not $14.99. Okay. Dollars U.S. And um, it won't go down again. So get in there. <laughs> but um, also, I found another really cool camera project uh, on Indiegogo. If you've ever shot with one of these old plastic lenses called the Diana camera, uh, someone's finally making a digital version of it. And so we'll put a link in the show note. But I thought it was really cool that someone's taking you know little components of hardware and an old classic plastic lens, and uh, I think it'll be really fun to shoot with. And for you know, call it 80 bucks US. I think it's a really good way to introduce people to the fun of photography. Um, and third and finally, uh, you know, Frederick just came back from France and had an amazing time. Uh, and I think, you know, planning a photo trip is one of the best things you can do as a photographer that it makes you think a lot about what it is you want to accomplish, the gear you want to bring, kind of all that wrapped up into one. And uh, so I think that's a really kind of fun and free thing you can do for yourself. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very cool. This this photography stuff. I think it's gonna catch on. I think people may people may start liking it. I don't know. <laughs> Jeffrey, what about you? What's your what's your what's your pick? I know it's gonna be something expensive because you. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> so. But <laughs> but I, uh, I, this is something I actually picked uh, a few shows ago. Uh, but I picked it based on the announcement. Uh, and this is the the Pro Photo uh, B is in boy one, um, and. These are, are battery-powered, 500 watt-second uh, strobes, cool. and they're terrific for me. I use I have uh, six of their D ones, which are 1,000 watt-second uh, strobe heads, monoblocks. And uh, the nice thing about the Profoto system is that you can control them from the computer. You can also control them from the remote module, things like that. But the B ones are tremendous because I'm always obviously working on location as an architectural photographer, and uh, to be able to use a light, stick it in a corner somewhere where we can't get power to it and having to avoid, you know, in the past I would just uh, deal with things by putting the light in there somewhere, letting the cord run right through the shot and right. doing one shot with it, one shot without it, having to mask it out later. But now these um, these B1 strobes are tremendous. I bought the kit. I was sort of waiting for the kit to come out. Uh, so for about 4000 bucks, you get two heads uh, in this little backpack, which is actually a pretty nice designed backpack. You get the 
the faster charger, which is a one-hour charger, two batteries, uh, the car charger, and uh, but it all it just they just work tremendously well. Um, I haven't put them to a super long test yet in terms of how long the batteries really really last and that sort of thing. Uh, but I, I have a feeling I might want to get a second set of batteries for just yeah. to have them on hand. But I absolutely, say, uh, yeah. you know, they're you know the Profoto will show them being used in a studio or something. But I mean these are location heads. I mean these are these are something that's just great to to be out there. Uh, and I used them last week on a shoot. Just had to light up this doorway in front of a building. Just you know pop it in there. I can have my assistant even just hold it by hand. Um, if need be, just for one quick pop. Uh, so I'm, they're sort of a, a game changer in the sense that they're just much quicker, and now it's another obstacle out of the way, so you're actually more likely to use them and more likely to do things right in terms of lighting. So it's actually a nice way to, you don't have to worry about where am I going to get power from. I don't want to drag an extension cord all the way across the shot or whatever. So it's yeah. um, re really nice. I'll put a link in the notes for it. That's cool. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are uh, $2,000 a head, you said? Uh, yep, pretty much. <laughs> wow. See, I think, I think they're two thousand ahead anyway. But if you buy the kit, then you get the backpack and the charger and. <laughs> yeah. I know what Tover's thinking. Tover's saying, you know, I'd save that money, and go get a Ilium. Your loom, you know, you know, you can save five hundred dollars to go out and fund fund a trip to go shoot some stuff with the Ilium. <laughs> I don't know it's if they actually, kind of, the looms come in colors, but you could get two different colors because the other one, the Electro, came in colors. Oh, oh yeah. Do they, Topher, or is this, they are they all black? One color only. But oh. Oh. You have your choice of colors as long as it's black, right? <laughs> exactly. Studio photography is actually one of the new areas we're looking to explore, that we have a hot shoe on the camera, and if you're comfortable shooting in studio light, this is a new opportunity to capture the light after the fact, too. So a lot of cool and interesting stuff. I think you should send one over to to Jeffrey to try out in his architectural business and see if it fits. Yeah, absolutely, just that. <laughs> yes, and then Jeffrey, you can report back to Twip and give us a full report of how it works yeah, for the architecture. Yeah. All right. All right. Very cool. All right, guys. So my pick. So I've been on this. You know, I've been sort of following Russell Brown and. You know our friend uh, Topher, who is he? That used to that used to hang out with you guys over at Lytro. That is the the uh, the hexacopter fanatic. Oh, Eric Chang. Yes, Eric Chang. So Eric Chang and Russell Brown and a bunch of other people have been playing around with these DJI copters. Drive me crazy. I was gonna get one. I, I keep getting real close to the edge of getting one, and then I go on some trip or something, and I think if I get it, something cool is gonna come out you know, right after I get it. I haven't bought one. And this new Kickstarter campaign just uh, just showed up. Uh, Aaron Mailer, who's, a, who's a, a frequent guest on This Week in Photo, sent this over to me today. It's called the Hexo Plus, and they're billing it. This is a Kickstarter campaign. They're billing it as the world's first autonomous aerial camera. So the value proposition of this thing is insane. So apparently you carry some sort of thing on you that it will just track. So you say, hey, I want you to be at this altitude. I'm your subject. I'm going to go snowboarding down this mountain. Follow me. And it just follows you wherever you go. So it's like your own personal helicopter that, that is capturing HD footage of you. So you slap a GoPro thing, a GoPro on this, let it go, and have it follow you. So... Looking at the page, uh, I'm going to click over to it now. Looking at the page, they were asking for $50,000 to get this thing off the ground. They still have 21 days to go. 
they currently, as of this recording, have $862,756 pledged from 1,593 uh, backers. So apparently there are other people out there that think this is cool. So I would, uh, you know, definitely check it out. Click over to the... Uh, to the uh, uh, Kickstarter page. It's called the Hexo Plus, H-E-X-O Plus, and it looks pretty dang cool. It's a hexacopter that just follows you around. I don't know. Tofa, what do you think? Would you get this thing? So, very interested, just like yourself, you know, sitting on the edge of the pool, waiting to jump in. Mm -hmm. It's going to be something new every time you you look at the stuff. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of... I don't shoot a lot of video, so I think it would be more for still photography, but yeah. uh, the autonomous part of this, I think, is really the selling point, that I don't want to have to learn how to fly a helicopter to take great photos. Right. Uh, you know, so I think this is really cool. Um, also, the stuff DJI is doing, and Eric Chang, who is the, the former director of photography at Lytro, it's just out of this world, and it's so cool to see the video footage they're putting together, but this is the first one I'd really consider buying, just because yeah. I'm not the pilot. Yeah, I was talking to I was talking to Aaron earlier, and I was saying, you know, this is amazing. What I would love to see is an autonomous uh, drone like this one, or a hexacopter like this one. But I'd like to see them. I'd like to see programmable flight paths where I could set this thing up and say, okay, go and do this, or have some level of intelligence that it would avoid obstacles and you know, or follow a certain thing if certain if certain, um, you know, variables were met, it would do A. If certain other variables were met, it would do B. And then, wouldn't it be great if you could deploy, like, 40 of these things that would then intelligently avoid each other and go do the mission and then return to base and land? I'm just saying. That'd be cool. It's, <laughs> it's almost like the Google self-driving car. I mean, yeah. it would yeah. be interesting how much of that logic's built in because, you know, the collision detection was my first thought. What if two people are skiing on the same mountain and they ski right by each other? Like, does it know how to avoid the other drones? And, right. Or quadcopters or whatever we're supposed to call them these days. But, right. Right. Um, yeah, and I'd also wonder what the restrictions of this are. Now that you mentioned that, I mean, there's there's the FCC rules around operating these things, but what about autonomously operating <laughs> aircraft that are out there? Are there any laws for autonomously operating aircraft? If there aren't, right. they're about to shortly. <laughs> yeah, so this thing will be legal by 2032. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's in a great I'm... area until then. I've done tons of research on these multi-rotors. Uh, very interested in the technology and everything, but it's 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 the rules that have got me uh, stymied on the whole thing because yeah. you know, there's no you can't use them for commercial purposes. And so, in the U.S. in other US. countries, so I've learned they're oh, not they're not as puritan puritanical as we are in the United States. In other countries, oh. they're fine with it. Some of them, some of them are a little bit uptight. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna call names, but. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be curious to see the alternative uses for this Hexo Plus. Like you could put the sensor on your kid and have the drone follow it to school. You know. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. Yeah. So Big Brother, you know, is uh, being consumerized for us. Thank you. Thanks for that idea, Jeffrey. All right. All right, guys. Uh, We're just about at the end of the show. And remind listeners, uh, I mentioned this earlier on, but I think we'll insert it into this episode of TWIP, um, an interview I did with Valerie Jardin and Serge. Remedy, Remedy, and uh, I'm still trying to get that French accent. Got to roll the R's and the D's and all this stuff. But Valerie and Serge sat down with me at a f- 
cafe. I was going to say a French cafe, but obviously it's a French cafe. It was in France. But we sat down at a cafe and uh, had a great conversation about Serge and his business and landscape photography and Photoshop and Lightroom. And then Valerie, her business of uh, doing street photography around Paris, Rome, Milan, etc. And uh, really educational. I'll uh, we'll post a link to the YouTube video and the episode for this or in the, the notes for this episode. But definitely check it out and subscribe to the YouTube channel to uh, to see more of these videos pop up. All right, guys, let's uh, let's close this thing off. I want to thank our friends over at Lynda.com for their support of this episode of this week in photo, Jeffrey. Where can people go to, to check out some of the stuff that you're working on and see some of that Lytro Illum footage that you, uh, that you create? <laughs> yeah, uh, um, all my information is over at uh, my website, jeffreytotero.com, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at jeffreytotero. Awesome. Thanks a lot for coming on again. It's great to have you. Thank you. All right, Mr. Topher Mo- Mer- Martini, the uh, the guy that's going to... You'll be married but maybe by the next time you come on This Week in Photo, huh? Quite possibly, yeah, in October. So Off the market. Topher is off the market. What is going on? Off the market. <laughs> the best feeling in the world to marry your best friend. But Yes, she's, she's awesome. Congratulations again. Tell her I said hello. We'll have to grab dinner. <laughs> yes, I'm in. You can uh, follow me at my website at tophermartini.com, which links to all my different social media, and or Twitter at at tophermartini. Awesome. And thanks again to you for coming on, Topher. It's always a pleasure and educational. I always feel slightly uh, stupid when I talk to you because you're so damn smart. It's <laughs> like, you know what, let me go get some book learning in before I talk to Topher again because he's so... Thank you for having yeah. me. Bye. Yeah, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. All right, listeners, and if you want to keep up with This Week in Photo, remember our website is at thisweekinphoto.com, or if you want to chat with me, you can find me at frederickvan.com. And with that, if I can wake up and get these words out, it's time to take that lens cap off. <laughs> This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production, produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. Hey guys, I'm here in Paris, France, at kind of a, I don't know, I guess this would be a typical outdoor cafe type environment, and we have a waiter here that's bringing us napkins. Hello, waiter. And I'm here with Serge Ramilly and Vadidi Jardin. Almost got it right. I got it right. Two powerhouses on this continent when it comes, and the world really, when it comes to photography, street photography, landscape photography, and all kinds of stuff. So in this interview, I could not pass up the opportunity to talk to both of these guys together while I'm here in Paris. So figured we'd do a quick twip-style interview here outside with all the noise and the excitement that is Paris and get an insight into photography from these pros' standpoint. So, Serge, tell me about... uh, First, introduce yourself. Tell us about your YouTube channel, your site, your tutorials, all that cool stuff. Okay, cool. So, yeah, my name is Serge Armelli. I'm a French photographer living in Paris. And uh, I I make uh, tutorials on the web. I have a pretty big channel on the mostly Lightroom. It's called PLP. Photography, Lightroom, and Photoshop tips and tricks, mm-hmm. and it's in English. Uh, a lot of uh, photos from all over the world, but mostly Paris. I'm actually giving for free all the raw files um, with the tutorials, and uh, I also have like you know full courses on Lightroom and Photoshop. 
been doing it for two years. I've now got over 150,000 subscribers, so it's starting to be pretty decent. That's cool. And uh, yeah, and I do mostly, I've been an interior design photographer in Paris, mostly shooting hotels and cafes for eight years. And as I've been doing this, I have been doing a lot of landscape photography. Mm -hmm. And I, I retouch a lot of my photos or not, but I try to get very dramatic photos. Yeah. So uh, sometimes it's heavily retouched. And as I grow as a photographer, I try to get it right in the camera as much as I can using filters or otherwise, but you know, trying to get the right light. So living here, I come sometimes like 20 times to the same place to get the same photo and stuff. Yeah. So that's what I do. Now, now, one thing I, that I noticed from the stuff that you do, because I follow you on YouTube and what you're doing and all that, uh, I watch you on my Apple TV at home on the big screen. Wow. <laughs> so, so you know, I noticed, you know, I'm a big fan of business and marketing and that sort of thing. You are one of those photographers that understands yes. marketing online and sales. And I notice your videos, they're full of information, but you're also promoting and doing all that stuff. How did you learn how to do all that stuff and, and the promotion online? Well, I came from a background of salesman. I was a salesman for many years. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in 1999, my brother created a web agency, which I became the sell, VP sale. Mm -hmm. And so I, I ran that business for almost 10 years, eight years actually. And I started doing photography, like not professionally in 2005, became fully professional in 2010. So from 2005 and 2010, I was doing VP sales and photography. So I have a big background in sales and marketing. And, uh, and my technique has been to give a lot of free stuff and to promote the paid stuff. And a very small percentage of people will actually buy the paid stuff, but it, it finances my life yeah. and my travel, which is really cool, so I can leave off my passion, yeah. which is photography. All right, Valerie, uh, let's talk about this stuff that you do. So speaking of photography, financing, and paying for your passion, your life, tell us about how you do these workshops, right? Because you don't live in Paris. You're from France, right? You're from Normandy. Yeah. And you're here all the time, though. How, do you, how does all that work? Not a bad gig, huh? <laughs> uh, so I, I do, um, I, I'm based out of the United States, and I run workshops pretty much worldwide now. I was just in Australia this year, but I uh, run weekend workshops in the U.S., like New York, I'm doing L.A. next year. Um, and, uh, but I want to bring people home because... Sometimes people have the wrong impression of France or the wrong idea, and I think if they take the time, especially in street photography, if they take the time to, to, to explore less traveled neighborhoods and do street photography, they have a completely different impression of Paris. And many, many times people who've been to Paris, you know, dozens of times come on my workshop and they leave with a completely different impression and they feel closer to the people and the culture. Yeah. So for me, the, the Paris workshop and the Normandy workshop are more, uh, it's, it's as much about the culture as it is about photography. Yeah. So that's very important. It's really, it's home. So yeah. So tell me about your the workshop itself. So this is day one, well, kind of two, day full day one of the workshop. And I've been, you graciously invited me along to tag along and see what you do here. Thank you for that. So what I've noticed, this workshop, as compared to other workshops, it's much more low-key. You allow much more free time for people to sort of get out and do stuff, and you're not, like, cracking the whip. Okay, you got to be at dinner. Okay, now go to bed. Now get up at 7 a.m. or 5 a.m., and now let's do it again. Why did you, how did you come to that formula? Well, you know, I learned as I grow as well. So the, the first workshop was a little bit more on a schedule, and I realized that people are here. Some of them are traveling with non-photographers, so they need some time with their spouse or whoever is with them on the workshop mm -hmm. um, that are not coming on the photo walks with them. And also people need some free time at dinner time, or they, we want to shoot 
you know, night photography. If we're stuck at a dinner every night for two, three hours, then you miss on a lot of the night shoot. So, um, so I find that finding a good balance. We're shooting mostly street photography, and it's about learning to see photographically. So we don't need to be up at dawn. You know, people are, are welcome to get up and shoot the sunrise if they want to. Uh, for me, we start when people are out and about. So if we start the photo walk at 9 and we go until about 2, mm -hmm. then it's a pretty good day. I mean, that's a lot of walking. Today we walk, what, about 6 miles? Yeah. So, you know, that's a... That's a good good yeah. day of walking. And then people have time to rest, and then sometime we meet up at night. There are three meals uh, that are included in the workshop, and then the rest of the time. We still all, often all eat together, mm -hmm. but you know, maybe we want a salad for a change and not a big gourmet meal. So yeah. I, think, uh, I think it's working out well this way. Now, now uh, Serge, looking at your, the work that you do and following your Photoshop, you know, the, your exploits on Photoshop and Lightroom and that sort of thing, yeah, I've seen you do things like uh, time lapse. You know, I've seen HDR. I've seen all kinds of cool stuff. On this week in photo, there's been a lot of back and forth talk about, and I'm a proponent of do whatever you want. It's art, right? I'm the huge proponent of that. In fact, in fact, I coined the phrase "punish." You know, punish pixels. You know, <laughs> the pixels were born to be punished, right? right? So, what's your what what is your philosophy on? Say you go out and you decide, you know what? Today I feel like taking a great photo of you know Notre Dame. You know, and you, you head over there. Are you capturing the pieces for a final work of art? Or do you go there and you're like, okay, I need to capture it just right on, on the, the digital film itself? Well, my workflow has evolved a lot. At first, uh, when I got into the business, I was a lot into HDR and super special effects. Because mm -hmm. I'm a huge movie fan and movies are heavily graded. Uh, actually... It's funny because people, you know, I mean, we do a lot of photo retouching, but where I've seen the most grading is really in movies. Movies are heavily, heavily retouched, really a lot. Oh, yeah. Much more than traditional photography. So that's my background. I have a big passion about movies. So at first I was using all these toys like Photomatics and, you know, um, I don't know, uh, all kind of plugins. Mm -hmm. And, and as I went along, I, I tried to get it right into the camera. But for, let's take Notre Dame, for example. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go a day where there is clouds. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to go at the right light, and I'm going to use ND filters. I'm going to do HDR. I'm going to bracket. I'm going to try digital blending. I'm going to do it until I get a photo where I go, wow, this is it. Yeah. So sometimes it's a long exposure. Sometimes it's an HDR. Sometimes it's just one raw file. What matters is what is the emotional impact that people have. You know, I put them up on 500px, and if they hit home page, which... I've had a few lately. Yeah. Uh, well, people seem to like it. So that's, I mean, that's really all matters to me is do people like the photos? I've seen some street photography with no retouching where people were just crying. Mm -hmm. And I've seen like heavily retouched photos that people didn't like. So it doesn't matter. I mean, some of the, because uh, I've been selling photos to big brands and stuff. Uh, for example, I just sold a photo to Nike.com like two days ago. Mm -hmm. And um, it's the most simple photo of LA I ever took. I was like walking in a car trying to park at uh, the observatory in L.A. Yeah. And the sun was coming down behind the hills. And I just stopped in the middle of the street. Everybody was like, eh, 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 and took one photo, underexposed it, and did very little retouching, and Nike bought it. And it's on the home page of Nike. So, wow. so, and some photos is heavily, heavily retouched. You know, what matters is, is do people like it or not? Yeah. And sometimes it's a lot of retouching, sometimes it's not. And as I grow, I try to do as little as retouching as possible. Yeah. Now, now, Valerie, I know you're opposite of, well, you, you're more in the little retouching as possible camp, right? So, and I've seen you at work. You're, 
I called you a ninja. You're the French ninja out here running around. You know, her camera's on silent, and you're getting the shot. People don't even know that they've been captured. So talk about your, your ethos and your methodology with regard to, like, walking around a scene like this and capturing photos. Well, I think I'm, I'm always respectful. And, and um, so when I do candid street photography, yes, I have my, my camera on full silent, which very few cameras, unfortunately, have that mode yet. Which and camera is this? This is the Fuji X100S and when it's on silent mode I don't even know I took a picture half the time I mean it's so, it, there is no beep there is no no light flashing or anything, it is so so silent, it takes some getting used to because you don't know you took the picture it's really, uh, it's that silent so I can be three feet from my subject, they don't know I take the picture I never look through the viewfinder I look through the, the, the screen in the back and I don't put it to my eye. I, sh I usually shoot a little bit lower. And there are so many techniques you can do as a street photographer to just not get attention to yourself, attract attention to yourself. I often use a technique, you know, I showed you that, I showed you that technique, yeah. you know. Show us the technique, the, show, uh, it. Yeah, show it, show it. Phone. 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 <laughs> the key grip off stage there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got it. Yeah, so, this is the patented okay. Valerie self technique. I pretend like I'm messing with my phone, you know, texting someone, and I'm actually looking at the back of my camera, locking my focus on my subject, um, and then recomposing. And they think I'm on my phone, so that works really well for street photography. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> Until they see your finger doing this, right? <laughs> and so, well, but there is no sound. You know, they can't really tell. Yeah. And um, or you know, another technique that a lot of street photographers use, they like they pretend like they're taking a shot of the building, and then they look at like then they pretend like they're looking at the result, and that's when they take the picture of their subject. So, um, those slide of hand. <laughs> But it, it's not—it's not—it's not to be sneaky. It's just not to draw attention. Because I'm not taking pictures of people in embarrassing situation, a vulnerable situation. I'm not doing anything wrong. And that's the thing about street photography: don't look like you're doing anything wrong, because you're not. You're just capturing life. And if you're respectful and you use, a, you know, some some simple tricks not to draw too much attention on you, then then you're, you're good. Nobody will notice you and you move along and you go to the next street corner and capture some other story. Yeah. Now, Valerie, I've been, I've been dying to ask you. So in the, in the couple of years that I've known you, you've gone from shooting full DSLRs and commercial photography with clients and all the, all the complexity that that brings to one camera with, with a lens that doesn't even come off. And you don't have any more clients, and this is your life, right? You come to places like this, you go to Normandy, you go to Rome, et cetera, et cetera. How, <laughs> how do you go from, you know, shooting that kind of high-end corporate clientele to just one little Fuji X100S and roaming around Paris? Well, you know, I think you need to make things happen for yourself. And I've, I've, I've always lived my life saying, you know what, there is no there is no uh, do-over at the end. So you got to live your dream now, and it's not going to be in five years or in ten years. you got to do it now. And if it works, it works. It doesn't work. Well, then I, at least I tried. And, um, I mean, I, I enjoyed... I, do it, I did actually mostly interior photography for the past ten years, and I enjoyed it working with interior designers. It was just a great gig. But, you know, then I was compromising with, you know, it was my vi I was compromising with a client's vision and my vision. Now I shoot just for me. Yeah. I don't need to please anyone. You know, people like my work. They come on my workshops. Fine. 
you know, I'm just shooting for me. And, and it's such a happy place for me to be able to travel, um, share my culture, excuse me, share my culture, but also uh, bring people to new places. I'm doing Rome next year with a guide there. I was in Australia this year. It's fun. I mean, it's really traveling and sharing my passion. As Serge said, I mean, this is our passion. That's what we live for. We're happiest when we're behind the camera and, uh, and making a living doing that. It's the dream of a lot of people. And I think a lot of people can do it. It's just, it doesn't come easy. It's a lot of work, it but is. It is. you know. Now, Serge, let's end this with you. So, first of all, the, this is Valerie's passion, and you mentioned this is your passion as well. This is what you do. This is your sole source of income, photography, right? You're not, you don't it's show... It's been for a couple of years. It's been for a couple of years, yeah. You don't show up in an office or anything anymore. It's nope. it's all, all out of, of Serge, the Batcave, right? Exactly. You don't wear a suit or anything anymore. <laughs> no, that's finished. I don't have schedules. I get up when I want. Same here. Yeah. Isn't that great? It's amazing. So what? We would hate going back to the corporate world. It would be impossible. Well, yeah. You know that. I know. It's it's a, it's a you're, we're unemployable essentially. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. We would, a, we would be an employer's worst nightmare. <laughs> so okay, let's end this search with advice. So not so much for for photographers that want to go and do this kind of stuff like workshops and all this, but photographers that are in a place that's foreign to them. Like, you know, say me. I'm here and I'm in Paris and I have the night off tonight because we're not really, we don't have any workshop activities. What would you say do? Like, do I, do I go to hit, do I hit the tourist spots? Do I go to the Eiffel Tower tonight and do an HDR? Do I go to Notre Dame and do some long exposure? What, what's the, what do you say? Well, if you're in Paris just for a few days and you're not coming back with an amazing shot of the Eiffel Tower, it's like people are not going to understand. So there is, you know, there's a few things you have to get. And uh, what I usually do when I come to a place that I don't know, I've been in Rome, for example, is I go on 500px and I type Rome and I look at the, you know, the nicest photos, find out where they were taken and, you know, and I prepare my, my uh, journey. Uh, so this is really like, for example... A lot of people don't know that, but uh, there is a specific spot in the Louvre behind the pyramid where you have the sunset, which is amazing, and there's hardly anybody there. Even you can have like 2,000 tourists the other side of the pyramid, but behind the pyramid on the corner, there is people, but not that much, you know. So there's a few uh, tricks. Now, I know these tricks because I've been living here and doing these photos over and over. I know the schedule, the right place, you know, when to go on the top of Notre Dame. So really is looking i also look a lot of the postal cards when i come into a place oh. and 500 px is the two source that i look for and then i say okay I, I, you know i always have like two three shots planned and then the rest is you know inspiration sometimes you go to the, i remember one day i was i went to go to take notre dame and the light was really bad but i looked on the other side it was amazing light and that photo became like one of my accounting photo so you never know what you find um so have have a couple of anchor shots and then the rest is serendipity Exactly. Yeah, you gotta have the Eiffel Tower shot. I mean, you come Paris, you don't have it. It's like <laughs> we're going tomorrow, but I might go tonight to get some night shots of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> well, well, Serge, thank you. I know you're busy, so thanks for coming over to have some. What are we drinking here, by the way? We're drinking Badois. <laughs> I'm drinking water. <laughs> what are you drinking, Valerie? Why? Because I have to honor my country. <laughs> and I have to string the words together coherently. So I'm <laughs> and I'm so jet lagged. Can you tell? So, Valerie, what about you? So the uh, you know, the, when you do the street photography out here and someone comes to Paris, they don't want to do, like, the, the iconic stuff. They're like, you know what? I don't want to do tourist stuff. I don't care about the Eiffel Tower. I want to just capture the essence of Paris. 
would it, what would you what would you advise me to do tonight? Well, just roam the streets. Just get lost on purpose. Really, that's the whole key of to street photography. That's easy. You don't go out with a plan. Yeah, <laughs> you don't. That's right. It's an easy thing for you to do. Um, so just don't go, go out with a plan. Just let the city, the streets, surprise you. But talking, you know, going back to the Eiffel Tower. Yes, get that shot out of the way, but then find more creative way to shoot it. You know, shoot outside the postcard. As, as we we're going to do, we're going to do tomorrow morning. The goal for the group will be to find different ways to shoot it that haven't been done. Well, yes, everything has been done. But then if you incorporate street photography with your iconic landmarks, then your pictures have never been done before because nobody has ever shot that picture with those people in it yeah. before yeah. and never will again. So, the, so, you know, I know a lot of photographers wait for everybody to leave the, the area. Okay, I don't want anybody in front of the Louvre. I don't want any, but if you incorporate street photography in your landmark pictures, you have truly unique photographs. So that's the plus to street photography. All right. Well, that's the well, she's going to be sold on it. Yeah. Oh, all right, guys. Let's let's end this. So, Valerie, if people want to sign up for your your street photography workshops, what's coming up next, and where should they go to check them out? Well, it's pretty much full for this year, but there's still spots for New York in the fall, and I think there is a spot for Paris in the fall as well. Maybe two spots. So uh, they can just find me on the on my website or just Google Valerie Jardin, J A R D I N. <laughs> See, <laughs> you got to say it correctly. No? That's right. All right. Thanks a lot, Valerie. And Serge, what about you? So you've got tutorials coming out all the time yes. on your YouTube channel. What's the best place to go? Should they go to your site to subscribe yeah. to you or YouTube or what? My site, photosurge.com, photosurge.com, or type Serge Ramin on YouTube, and you have over 130 uh, you know, tutorials for free and over 200 role files for free. That's wow. crazy. That, that's just crazy. Well, thanks for doing that. That's awesome. Sure. No problem. All right, guys, that's it. Serge Mille, Vatily Jardin here in Paris, France. We were, uh, now, what are we going to do now? Then we're going to have some real wine, I yeah, think. Probably. I think now that this is behind us, we've got the interview done. You guys are happy you have your info. I can have some wine and chill out and work on my jet lag. I'm Frederick Van Johnson. See you guys later. Oh, wow, it's time to take the lens cap off. <laughs>